0: Stephanie Coxon and I'm Kathy Anderson Martin, and we are two women influencing real life. So let's twirl. COVID has brought out some interesting things over the last three and a half years. And part of that is just the recognition of medical freedom, the importance of it being mandated to take things into your own body, of which you cannot change or withdraw. People who were once all for vaccinations have all of a sudden become anti-vaxxers without even knowing it. And there's some pretty important things that are wrapped up behind all of that and have come out of that. And so today, we want to welcome Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, who is a research scientist, author, and founder and CEO of Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, also known as IPAC. He's the author of three books, Ebola, Cures versus Profits, and the environmental and genetic causes of autism. He, along with other scientists at IPAC, performed research in the public interest aimed at finding ways to reduce human suffering. In 2020, he founded IPAC-EDU, which is an online university that offers in-depth courses to empower the public through knowledge. He has a Substack, stack through Pop- popular rationalism, is a semi-regular podcaster, and um, has Unbreaking Science, excuse me, He has also published the first study at the risk of chronic illness due to repeated exposures to SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins. These results were validated by Harvard University. He has published studies comparing the health outcomes of children exposed to vaccines compared to those who have not with surprising results. It is an absolute honor to have him on the show today. So join us. I'm Stephanie Coxon. And I'm Kathy Anderson-Martin. And we are two women inspiring real lives. So let's twirl. Thank you for being on here today,
1: Jack. It's yes, wonderful um, to have you.
0: And I, I feel every time I see your bio, I'll be honest, I feel a little um intimidated a little bit. Yes. Yes, that's the
1: first uh, that's the <laughs> first thing I thought.
0: <laughs> there, there's yeah, there, you're absolutely amazing and I just want to as I so I I introduce you as Dr. James Lowndweiler, but if people can forgive me, I tend to call you Jack. We go pretty far back at this point i'm thinking close to 20 years is that correct
2: yeah we'll leave it we'll leave it at that you know we've <laughs> lived a few lives age. yeah hi stephanie
0: <laughs> Yeah, don't give away the age but yeah we've known each other for a long time and when both of us first met, it was very different capacities in our lives. And it's interesting that all these years later, because we actually met, I, you got me to sing on stage. You were playing musical instruments, right? Yeah. I was terrified. You're like, just do it.
1: Wow. And from there. This is a whole new side of you. I know. A soloist and wow. Right. A vocalist uh, or a health freedom band. Yes. Well, at
0: that <laughs> point,
2: we got to get the band back together. That's that's, that's
0: Right. But at that point, neither one of us were, like, I was a little aware of some of the vaccine risks. I don't think you were aware at all at that point, correct?
2: Well, I was aware about Andrew Wakefield, and I had spaced out the vaccines for my two sons out of an abundance of caution. And I don't know what it was. Maybe I just mentioned to the pediatricians, you know, I was in graduate school and an assistant professor moving from state to state. In at that, that stage in your career and higher learning, your kids are basically army brats. You're moving around, you know? Yeah. Um, I never had any gruff from any pediatrician when I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about spacing these out. Let's space them out. Let's not do so many at once and so on. Um, but then again, you know, the whole mass media crackdown on comparing anyone who showed any semblance of intelligence and reason about vaccines was now to be Wakefielded hadn't happened yet. Right. So um, I was aware that there was mercury in some and other things I didn't really know about, but I was so focused on my career. I really didn't pay attention much to my embarrassment. And I have to apologize to my sons for, for not having their back that way, but neither one of them, so far as I know is vaccine injured, but you can never tell when you're looking at a child or your child, who's 20, 22, 23, 24, um, you know what they would have been like without that medical intervention. So, or you know, the without the metals. And and my sons came in to the program just as they ramped up the aluminum and phased out the mercury. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, I, I some of you will recognize me. I used to be a, a host on one of these shows uh, on this very platform, and so I'm, I wanted to congratulate Stephanie and, and Kathy for for taking up the baton and. <laughs> and I'm really excited about this twirl thing. Um, so, you know, that's the thing about it. As a science, research scientist, I had never done any studies on vaccines because they were sequestered into CDC and into, in, you know, companies uh, that were contracted by CDC and, 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 and pharma, pharmaceutical companies and so on. Uh, and, just a quick, um,
1: quick question for those listening. Um, your background was as a research scientist before and uh, in other areas, correct?
2: In almost every area. My genetics professor as an undergraduate told me, listen, do not specialize. You're, you know, it was basically telling me you're too valuable. You're going to learn a lot. Don't specialize. Uh, and so, you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist, but uh, genetics, genomics, epigenetics, you know, bioinformatics, I was the director of a bioinformatics analysis core at the University of Pittsburgh. It was supposed to last for three years. Um, It lasted for 10, and I was there for three years before that at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute and in the School of Medicine as a faculty member at the Department of Pathology. So clearly, my interest in cancer, personal interest in cancer because of my mother's story, um, I wanted to understand the pathophysiology of disease. And so I was, I had the best job in the world. I had a lot of money to do research with other people's clinical samples, right? They were busy doing clinical research and I could design the studies and so on and ask really what I thought were helpful questions. Like, can we develop biomarkers that can predict if people have to take these noxious chemically, uh, you know, toxic chemotherapy agents for cancer, can we predict who we're wasting our time with? Can, can, can we use biomarkers for, for, say, a single drop of blood or family history or other types of data that, that tell us that, no, you know, this particular approach to therapy is not going to be effective for this patient? I was working on individualized medicine before it had a name.
0: And it's, we should note that at this point, that's come to fruition, correct? I mean, we, we are seeing that with the, the RGCC um, testing and therapeutics and stuff like that for cancer. So a lot of that basic research has been expanded.
2: Oh absolutely. And- it wasn't just me. There was a whole early detection research network and I was, you know, embedded with this e- EDRN at, at the NIH. And <clears throat> you know, it's really funny because there's one biostatistician who was part of that now and he's on Twitter arguing with Steve Kirsch all the time. <laughs> and you know, I thought he was objective and reasonable. You know, it's like if you if you're going to be able to if you have the skills to be able to understand studies and critique them. In epidemiology method, epidemiologic methods applied to cancer, then you should be able to apply the same degree of acumen when it comes to vaccines.
1: Yes. One one would think. Right. Yeah. But I, you
0: know, and I want to point out that I think in a lot of the cases, these doctors who take a kind of a hard stance on vaccines are probably like you, in which they don't have the time to really research them. I think oftentimes the medical establishment is very dependent upon other people presenting research findings and they don't necessarily have the skill to dive into the research or the time so they just it's take not really give it,
2: that's that's, yeah. that's my understanding as well and that's why they're stuck they're they're completely at the behest of the people who say that they're doing a good job who congratulate themselves and give them give themselves awards for you know public health service and um nobody bothers to look you know and see where the bodies are literally and so you know the, the methodology and i've talked about it since 2015 when i first discovered that the methodology is basically fraud you, you have a data set you it's about vaccines you're studying adverse events and bad outcomes you're studying efficacy if you find too many adverse events then you adjust the data adjust the methods adjust how you define the subgroups reanalyze the data until the problem goes away and this was the mo with the stefano study on mmr on-time mmr versus delayed mmr that led to led to the film vaxxed and it's all in my book cures versus profits which i was writing before i knew about Vaxxed. i actually interviewed brian hooker for that book and that's part of the brief part, part of how we met um or hung out i want to say you used to come to my book release parties at, at a did. cafe in, Pennsylvania, like a in Pittsburgh country. Pennsylvania um <laughs> I think she was a fangirl
1: yeah <laughs> it sounds like I just said I whispered to her were you a groupie it sounds like you know the girl that's following around the book study guy I don't know or the book release But
2: I, on. I couldn't I couldn't pick a better one because you know she's very very loyal Stephanie also for the record was the very first ever person to donate to IPAC. ever
1: congratulations thank you from the She's first I've ever
2: had as a yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, so, so anyway, you know, um, and since IPAC and doing this independent research and all the rest, I also created this online university, IPAC EDU, because my head is so full of things and I was talking a lot with a lot of people and they couldn't really understand me. And sometimes they would go up to the microphone and say silly things like the virus doesn't exist or they would say the virus is just an exosome. And, you know... it undermined completely any validity of any other concern that they had and i wanted to educate the public and i am educating the public you know we've had over 2400 students come through classes at ipac edu now and we teach biology genetics immunology jessica rose is thinking about coming and teaching virology here vandenbosch is teaching a form of immunology right now about pandemics but we also teach you know spreadsheets analytics biostats data analysis i mean you know, if people want to check it out, it's at IPECEDU.org. I'm not here to, to sell the courses, but we need, we need people who are educated enough to be able to really join us in the fight. And, are these courses,
1: um, are these courses open to anybody or just the medical community or professionals? Oh, are
2: wide men? open to the public. The whole point is, you know, for, for 160 to $180, you can get a 15, uh, 15 semester hour, you know, 15 contact hours with Professor professors who give lectures at the level that they would advanced undergraduate or graduate school. Wow. Uh, I'm really quite serious about creating an army of people who are super educated. There's no degree, but people that are there are, are, are there for lifelong learning. It's been a success and it's going to continue to be a success. Let me tell you about one of the one of the greatest successes that we had because of the project. We had a, a course last summer. I taught it with Bernadette Pager. You, you guys might recognize her name, but uh, it was We're Facebook
0: about, friends, but it ends you, there.
2: <laughs> it, that's good. So the, the course, the course was about medical rights, human rights and informed consent. And the goal of this course and many of my goals, I, 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 I've always taught my sons the importance of understanding. If you want to understand any complex problem in society, study the history of the problem. You cannot possibly truly understand it unless you go do a deep dive into history. So, you know, I hadn't really read the Nuremberg Papers, So and I hadn't read all the other papers that came out after that. I I, I hadn't read um, the Helsinki document. I hadn't read the Belmont Report. I hadn't read anything that our government had written about adopting those or not adopting those policies. And so it was a fascinating course. And we went through and we read all of the history of informed consent and medical rights that we could. And um, I was shocked that There was a person who got involved in the mid-1970s when he really came into prominence uh, in public health throughout the late 70s into the 80s, and he actually wrote a paper where he said, when there are two people in the room and the question of informed consent on a medical procedure comes up, the most important person in that room is the doctor, Because they know more than the patient. Do you know who that man was? Who? Anthony Fauci. Oh, oh, goodness gracious. He published a paper. uh, I did not know that. Exactly. This is the value of actually doing this and learning with the students. He published that paper with his spouse, uh, Christine Grady. And from that moment forward, there was a departure from the public's understanding and expectation that Nuremberg mattered, that Helsinki mattered, that Belmont Report mattered, that informed consent for medical experimentation mattered or medical procedures mattered, and the medical community. They went their way, and we, and we stayed on our track. And this is where this discord came from. Now, understanding that and going through all that history then, I was moved to the point where I understood now why they had to use uh, the Code of Federal Regulations and abuse that. They had to pass laws locally at the state to try to take away exemptions that our forebears actually were smart enough to say, hey, not everybody can handle these vaccines. We need laws to protect those people. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies um, flipped a coin. I don't know how they chose which political party to approach, but they went to the Democratic Party and they said, well, you take a a bunch of money. And uh, got these exemptions in these states. And they said yes, uh, much to their discredit. And that's why I call myself a recovering Democrat. I'm no longer a Democrat. <laughs> so <laughs> Stephanie's like fist bumping, yay. But, um, She's
1: actually doing that. I can testify. I'm <laughs> sitting here with her. Yes. Uh,
2: yeah. Uh, but I was so moved by this experience and learning with everyone that I penned a document called the Universal Declaration of Medical Rights. And the, I'll send it to you guys. The, the Universal Declaration of Medical Rights is a living document for every individual to use before you go to the doctor. And you, you print this, you read it first, you make sure you understand it and agree with it, of course. And if you don't agree with it or you think it's incomplete, you change it. It's your voice. This document is your voice. You update it to the extent that you feel is necessary and useful to your situation. You hand it to your doctor and you say, Hi. I'd like you to read this. And if you can sign this document, then you can lay your hands on me. You can give me medical care. I trust you. If you can't sign this document, or if your lawyers tell you that you can't sign this document, then I do not, uh, I do not believe you're going to be providing me with truly, fully free, prior, and informed consent.
0: Yeah, I so I actually downloaded this um and went through it. I love it. I'd love to talk about some of the points in here that you make and the reasons why. You know, there's some pretty important stuff in here. First is just that bodily integrity and sovereignty. But when you get into your articles, and there's a whole litany of, of articles here, um, I find it before, really before we
2: get to the articles. Let's let's talk about that bodily in- integrity and sovereignty. Why is that in there? That's in there, Stephanie, because. The doctor is put in the position where they, in front of the patient, make a statement to the individual. I acknowledge you as a full person. You are endowed with the rights that are in the Constitution. That acknowledgement to that person, it's not to lawyers. It's not to any. This is a contract between two people. Once the doctor acknowledges that before them, they see a person who is endowed with the full rights by their creator or by the constitution, wherever you believe they came from, then everything is different because now they can't really backtrack on that, can they? Later on, they can't say, "Mm, you know what, I'm going to justify why you're not entitled to these rights. Okay, so this is profoundly fundamental to the and it also alters the nature of the relationship. We you know there's a our our society doesn't really have a currency of honor and integrity. I mean, I trust you, Stephanie. I'm glad to know you, Kathy. I'm sure one day I'll trust you as well. But I trust Stephanie. I have a very a very small trust circle because we don't abide by any kind of honor system other than you know don't take too much Halloween candy. <laughs> don't take more than one <laughs> yes. piece, right? But but here we have our very lives, we're putting our very lives in the hands of these people. And if they can't at least acknowledge that they're not just here for the seven minutes for these people that are wearing shoes, walking in and, and out of their clinic, right? They're not doing fast food medicine. If they, they, they're not gonna take the time to acknowledge the individual, then perhaps they should seek another profession.
1: You, you know, I, I appreciate hearing this because you and Stephanie have a much longer history of these issues. Uh, For me, and uh, this is just something, you know, since COVID that I started questioning. Mm -hmm. Well, I shouldn't say that. My daughter, uh, I mean, I did in the past, but I think a lot of us just always, oh, well, it's the doctor. Right. So I, you know, they went to medical school, so they know. And so, you know, my own kids when they were little and, you know, here's the vaccine they need, here's whatever. Okay. Okay. We just don't even think or a lot of us, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think COVID made me say, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of other questions. But I think that's a quite, you know, we don't even think to think that or be able right. to demand that. And I'd like to point out at this very moment that I saved
0: Kathy's life by telling her not to get the vaccine. Yeah, because she was signed up. She was ready I was, to go. I was
1: like, just get it over with. And we'll just move on with our lives. And then, but, I, you know, but there's a whole different level of, of questioning and so forth. But I say that because there are people listening who are like me who are like, I just never really thought um, you know this is a problem, right? Um, and you know then we go from there. And you're exactly right. Integrity is something right now, and that's one of the main reasons I questioned this because I see like this doesn't make any sense. That I feel lied to, and so forth. Yeah. And when that loss of integrity and trust, then you have a problem.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: So, yeah, and I I th- I think
0: exactly what you're saying is that bo- bodily integrity, that sovereignty. That's probably one of the most highlighted topics of COVID, right? What is your right? Right. And every person should acknowledge that right because we're each individual. Mm -hmm. We are, we can make our own decisions. We, you know, that's our, our God-given right to, to have that ownership of our bodies. Right.
2: Absolutely. Would you mind me writing the, reading the preamble? It's very short.
0: Absolutely. Go Go ahead. ahead.
2: The preamble says the people of the earth, subjected to overtures to tyranny by individuals whose medical products render massive profits, hereby stand together and declare that the gross distortions of the human rights enshrined in the Nuremberg Code, in various machinations and apparitions falsely represented as extensions of the code, are ended. The encroachments on our bodily autonomy. And the denials of freedom of choice among pathways to health and well-being are also, via this declaration, hereby terminated. Inasmuch as any person serving in state governments or working as physicians or in corporations might perceive this declaration as requiring their approval or ratification, we declare our bodies wholly and entirely free from their consideration in matters of health, wellness, and medicine.
0: You know, Bef- we're going to have to go to break here in about three, three, four minutes. And before we get into the, the articles, because I want to dive in a little bit deeper to why are some of these in there based on experience, I'm sure. But one of the things that concerns me is just language in general, because they are changing language and they use language. their The advantage and be- the lack of knowledge within our society enables to, them to do that. And so we create what I call word salads in order yes. to move forward an agenda. And how important is it for us to maintain a solid language so that that sort of thing does not happen and enables, to, it enables us to keep something like this into place?
2: Yeah, the language is very important. I mean, when, when COVID, uh, you know, first caused caused problems, there was some discussion about something called immune enhancement right? You, you, we, not, we might not be able to succeed with the vaccine because it might cause immune enhancement. Well, immune enhancement sounds like something that you go to Stephanie Cox and Hunt's practice for. Right? <laughs> it sounds like uh, hugs from all of your family and sunshine and plenty of vitamin C. And this was Peter Hotez, <coughs> excuse me, um, Peter Hotez, Paul Offit. Uh, and they. It's a euphemism for disease enhancement. So somewhere along the way, Disease enhancement, the fact that a vaccine might cause the virus to cause more severe disease, became immune enhancement. And that's what Stephanie's talking about here. They bury things in language. Right. So So this is a document that many people will take some time to warm up to because they really have to think about the language. But the language is written in the style of our founding fathers. It is a declaration that states, I am a unique individual person. What happens to my body is going to be determined by me
0: yes and as an as a parent for a minor That's right yes. because we accept full responsibility when we have those children and we then have to deal with the consequences of the decisions that we make and so when another person whether a doctor or government a school Are making decisions for our children, they do not
1: face the consequences of those decisions. That's correct. It's the parents, my children are adopted. And I remember in court when they read that very formal you are now responsible as the parent of this child for their health, well being, and decisions and so forth until they become an adult. And so the
0: language that's being used is just wildly important. And that is true that all of us need to look into what does the language actually mean? Don't assume because it sounds like sunshine that it is sunshine. That's right. that's right. You know, and so I think that's one of the first things that we as individuals need to recognize that even the the most lovely sound sounding um, grouping of words can have a horrible meaning if you're not looking into what it actually means. And if you don't know, if you don't understand something, ask someone who may.
2: Correct. Absolutely. And, and I have an entire course that you can take. You can sign up for the course and take the course and understand all the documents that this particular document uh, was inspired by.
0: And that's why I love you is because you're solution finding. <laughs> you see a problem, you've got a solution. You don't even need to ask. Like you just are, you've already got it at hand. You're ready to go. I mean, it, it's phenomenal.
1: But So we have to take a break here yep. in a moment and um, come back to learn more about the declaration and uh, all the finer points in there. So America Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeart Radio Network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can hear them on the podcast on those same the podcast on those same apps. Be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We must all do our part and share the stories, the articles, podcasts, and videos. So we can help secure america's future this is
0: jody o'malley with nurses out loud did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell redox signaling molecules are produced these molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix Rx
2: nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix Rx. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud Shop to get twenty-five percent off your entire order. Use coupon code OutLoud25. That's coupon code OutLoud25. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID nineteen and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme Natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best go to outloudcare.com today and use code outloud for 25% off your first order
0: with the rise of independent media we are now america outloud.news Okay, so we are back, and I want to get into some of these articles that you put into the Universal Declaration of Medical Rights, and there were some that popped out at me. Maybe you want to add more to the list, but the first one I want to talk about is actually Article 4, and this says, the right to be treated by physicians and other medical professionals as an entire complete person with the dignity deserving the same respect afforded any other person, notwithstanding our medical choices and without fear of reprisal for the same. And I would say this is a, re- this is a repeated. um, This is a re- kind of undertone throughout the, the declaration. It's like a basis for a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, it, it, it is. Right. And it's that fear without reprisal. Now, what made you have that as an undertone for this thing? Are, are Do you have, you know, something that's happened to you? Do you have stories?
2: Yeah, well, you know, when they, when they went for the exemptions and they tried to take the exemptions away, Then uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually said that it was okay for doctors to get in the face of the patients and tell them that, and, and use aggression and use coercion. They actually wrote themselves a permission slip to use coercion. Even then, I knew that that violated the US Code of Federal Regulations for human subjects experimentation. Human subjects research involves applying a product, medical product that might have an unknown consequence. And the purpose of doing the program is to try to learn what, that, what those consequences may or may not be. Every single vaccine on the pediatric schedule is subject to what's called post-market pharmacovigilance, post-market studies that look back over time to see, are these vaccines safe? I was very upset actually, when I learned about their reliance on retrospective studies instead of prospective studies. A randomized clinical trial is a prospective study. You experiment on group A with a treatment and you don't experiment on group B with anything. It's a placebo for the most part, or you might compare two treatments, but that's in the weeds. Um, In that setting, every patient has to be given the chance to say yes, I give you permission to experiment on me, but in the vaccine post-replication, sorry, post-marketing trials, um, no one's given No one, no pediatrician ever told any parent and no one ever told me, do you know that these are experimental vaccines? Now people are going to debate whether these are truly experimental vaccines because they went through FDA authorization and all the rest and so on. But, Pharmacovigilance and, and, and long-term safety is only studied by retrospective studies. So there is no known long-term safety randomized clinical trial for vaccines and vaccine safety, which means it's an uncontrolled prospective study to which none of us are have given consent. And that is a legal definition. It's also a scientific definition that has completely different ramifications. For and consequences for what the expectation is for informed consent. Now, the the other thing, of course, the the fear, you know, I would like to make my medical choices without fear of reprisal and coercion. Well, that's just what you should have anyway. You shouldn't bully your patients into accepting a a, a medical um, intervention of any kind. You shouldn't be a mean person. You shouldn't threaten to kick them from the practice. That's just garbage. That's not nice, Right. But the, the, the fact is that the human mind does not make appropriate informed consent decisions when it's under fear. So right. this will free the human population and people who adopt it from ha- feeling that they have to make a decision or their doctor won't like them or their doctor will kick them from the practice or their doctor will do this. I mean, if you're making medical decisions, even if they're life and death decisions and your primary concern is whether you're going to tick off your doctor, find another doctor.
1: We've seen, I know Stephanie and I have mutual friends where that is continuing to happen that yeah. declined some vaccines and said, well, I'm sorry, I'm uh, not just COVID vaccines, but other things, uh, right. you um can no longer come to our practice anymore. Which is
0: not the Hippocratic oath no. by any means, right? Because it's first do no harm. Um, And they're not taking that in consideration, but I want to point out, you know, that whole fear factor. I'll never forget the last time I went to the pediatrician about 13 years ago and they I had taken my son and they want to give him a flu shot. I said, no, thank you. And they literally said to me, it's going to be your fault if he dies of the flu. Wow. That it like, literally, they basically told me my child is going to die of the flu. Now I'd like to point out that's 13 years later, he happens to still be alive and he's actually never had the flu. Not one time has this kid had the flu, oddly enough. But that same visit is also when I'm like, this doesn't make sense if we're using car salesman tactics in what's supposed to be an educational setting, because to, to be a doctor is really to, to teach, right? It's to, it's to give knowledge. It's to educate. That wasn't given to me. What was given to me is just fear. And I felt like it's the used car salesman that says, look, you're going to have to buy this right now, or it's not going to be on the lot tomorrow. So you better take it, or you're going to lose out on this opportunity. And with that, I left. And they followed me out and they blocked me into an elevator, not allowing me to leave until I signed papers. And so I literally had to sign papers under duress to get out of this pediatric office.
2: Wow. That that, that is kidnapping. And I've had people have called me and they found the same, they're in the same situation. And I told them to call the police, give you the address that you're at and say, I'm being, I've been, I'm being held against my will by a group of people here. And that's it. Don't tell the police anything else. That's illegal. They're breaking the law. See, the the, the idea that medical people are somehow above civil law is a big mistake in this country. That, you know, that because they have some authority, people don't take the time to study the distribution of authority. Yes, medical boards answer to the executive branch of the government. That's something that we need to change. They need to change to the legislative branch, but they they need to answer the legislative branch. That's a topic for another discussion. But um, if anyone anywhere... Holds you in a physical location against your will. The legal definition of that is kidnapping, and I would press charges and make sure that they were charged under civil law. There's no such thing as medical law in that way that they, they you know, allows them to hold a parent against the parent's will until they take one particular action or the other. Now, <clears throat> the the language in the Article Three. Uh, before Article 4 actually says the right to decline for any reason, any treatment, therapy, drug, or medical procedure, or prophylactic offered to us by physicians, the representatives, pharmacists, or any entity or individual authorized to administer steam without fear of coercion or reprisal. So coercion was more explicit in Article 4, perhaps, than in Article 5, and and sorry, in Article in Article 3, than Article 4. But this article four is, is I'm glad you've zeroed in on it because this is the one that I'm most proud of. This is about two people, right? This is not about what practice or pharmacy someone's working for. It's not about a medical board. It, it, I have the right to be treated by physicians in any other medical pr- profession as a complete and tired person without them making me afraid. And, and so this, I think, spoke to you, Stephanie, because you, you, you identified that as basically very plainly communicating a fundamental right, you know, hands off. You you can't do that to my mind. It's really about what they're doing to your mind. You cannot make properly informed uh, decisions if you're acting under the threat of coercion. This is why torture doesn't work, to get real answers, right? And, and so that's why our forebears put it into Nuremberg and put it into Helsinki and put it into Belmont. You, you can't coerce patients to do to do these things. It's wrong.
1: I think it's an over a uh, theme that we keep talking about control. Yes, it's about control. And in this case, you know, this is the it, it's your body and um, your rights as far as what you think is in the best interest of your own health. And, um, you know, without someone else's control and, and let um, me yeah and let me point out that
0: you probably know yourself better than the 15 minute doctor's appointment
1: that you're having. You know, mm-hmm. I w- yeah, I was thinking of this when my daughter was born. She in a week or two old, she was diagnosed in congestive heart failure due to a ventricular septal defect. That went into failure to thrive. She couldn't eat feeding tube. I thought the feeding tube this was before I actually was a medical freedom fighter, Stephanie. I want you to know this. <laughs> I thought that was creating more problems and demanded it be removed. And the doctor, I remember said to me, um, this is what the book says. And this is what we're doing. I said, well, people aren't books. I demand a second opinion. And um, he kind of argued, but gave me so. And I went somewhere else. And that doctor said, I agree with you, remove the tube and she was fine. Um, so there was a little bit of pushback, but not to the extent. Now that was 23 years ago then do you think this is something that's getting uh, certainly during COVID, but that's getting worse all the way around? It's definitely gotten worse. I would, I, you know, I would
0: say around 2010 or so I saw a big uptick because initially, even with my older children, I could say, no, thank you to a couple of vaccines. Whereas now you have to get everything single one. And as a matter of fact, when I was getting vaccines as a child, I became so distraught in the doctor's office, I ran out of the room, refusing to get my vaccines. I remember trying to get over the railing as fast as I could before they grabbed me, and because I was so distraught, I did not get those vaccines. At least that I remember. (laughs) So
2: either that or that—that's that's that's commendable. Uh, um, (laughs) Grace, my partner, tore the pediatrician's office apart. She actually trashed the place. She wouldn't take it. (laughs) Think think about how bad it was at the height of COVID. Families were on the phone with nurses stations. The nurses stations were saying the doctor says that your family member needs to go on the ventilator. And family members were pleading, please don't put them on the ventilator. I'm hearing people are dying on the ventilator. All right. And they were threatening. They were saying, no, you know what? If we don't put them on the ventilator, they can't eat. Don't put them on the ventilator. They're going to die. They were threatening this. And then fast forward to 2021 when a group of doctors came out and said you know what we're so ashamed of ourselves we were trying to protect ourselves from people the hospitals were filling up with people with covid we needed to free up the beds and so we put people on ventilators because we knew they would die Hmm. because we knew they would die they violated informed consent for the medical procedure against family wishes to free up a medical bed for another patient who was then going to become Deadwood and take up space in the COVID ward. And then that person would also have to ventilate. And now we know, as I predicted in April and May of 2020, because they use PCR wrong to do the testing that most people who got seriously ill when fa- they followed Fauci's medical advice to go home and get as sick as you possibly can for 10 days.
1: Right. Which never had then, happened before. Right. Then, I mean, that exactly. kind of advice before, before in the past, you, exactly. you weren't told go home and get sick. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So they followed Fauci's medical advice to go home and get sick as possible for 10 days and then go to the emergency room. I predicted in April and May that we would see mass casualties as a result of people who would go home with bacterial infections, do nothing for their bacterial infection. There's no antibiotic. There's no intervention. There's no steroids, nothing and that they would die as a result of bacterial infections undiagnosed as such. I made that perfectly clear when I started railing against the PCR. This was why I was so upset about it at the time. Then the same publication, the New York Times has published that over 95% of the people who died on ventilators during COVID, during the height of COVID, died from bacterial infections. Wow. It was completely preventable. Those deaths were preventable. Instead of putting them on ventilators, why don't you give them antibiotics? They wouldn't do it. I sent to one hospital here because we had cl- someone very close to us uh, go, to the, go to the hospital, a stack of 17 papers, including Peter McAuliffe's paper, including papers out of Corey's group and so on, saying, listen, you, ca- you have to give them aspirin. It's microclots. It's not pneumonia. You guys don't understand the etiology of what you're trying to treat. They said thank you. We have the folder. I said, did you read it? They said, no. We have to follow the protocol. They won't substitute aspirin for Tylenol if a patient has a backache. I mean, this this is how bad it was. They had to stay on protocol. Why? Because if they went off protocol, they wouldn't get the thirty thousand dollars per patient for, you know, for the COVID death. They wouldn't get the twenty thousand dollars. So, knowing that a medical procedure is going to kill a patient and doing it against informed consent is the ultimate in the violation of informed consent. And this was the motivation for this course and the motivation for this universal declaration.
0: And let's differentiate just for a second standard of care doctor versus administrators, right? So it's the administrators who set the standard of care. They're the ones that are really receiving the funds and everything else and understand that. I think, at least I hope that doctors are following standard of care more because they're afraid of lawsuits if they deviate from standard of care because that's what they're taught.
2: Well, let's remember that there's no law on the books that says that administrators in hospitals establish standards of care. In fact, it's quite opposite. Paul Thomas taught me that traditionally before the 1980s, standards of care actually varied from part of country to part of country for a lot of medicine. Because the populations are so different, and the the climate's different, and the environment's different, and the diets are different. And so standard of care is supposed to be like a grassroots, uh, highly distributed uh, intelligence, collecting information, feeding it upstream to the center, bottom up, learning. That's supposed to be standard of care, where one doctor in one town calls another. Hey, we've we've got this screen stuff coming out of these people's nose. Do you see it over there? Yeah, what's working? That's standard of care. It's community-based. Instead, now what we have, of course, is top down ultimately from Fauci, ultimately from CDC, ultimately came from the White House, from non-medical personnel who were dictating what the medical procedures were allowed and were not allowed. So if the medical community has to protest, as they have, for example, in Albany, New York, Bobby Kennedy, Del Bigtree, and myself and others, many others were speaking out for, for retaining the exemptions and there were about i would say 60 doctors in medical coats that came out of a different building and we thought that they were there to protest us i'm like oh this is going to be interesting <laughs> they were there to tell the tell the uh, legislators that no the doctors have to have the say over you know certain things about about medical care not the administrators so you know, the for-profit medical industry declared divorce on the population during COVID. I want you to think about that. Every time they told a family, it doesn't matter what you think, I have to follow this protocol. There's sinews the heartstrings that snapped in those families, and they will never trust doctors or hospitals the same way again. They want to find functional medical doctors. They want to find I- integrative care centers. They want to go to the wellness company. They, they want to take advice from people who are willing to speak truth to power. They don't want to, Uh, a bunch of people who will just kowtow and not think for themselves. And if you're a doctor and you can't think for yourself, that's because you were trained to memorize. You were trained to memorize and selected for because you can follow orders.
0: And I I think that actually leads to another one of your articles that has also become an issue. If, If you look at Article 10, the freedom to include of your own volition and free will, any additional supplements, prescribed medications, medical procedures, with or without an attending physician's knowledge, and free from interference by any medical professional or their representatives, because there has been a big push to get rid of supplements that are available to people with or without practitioners. So that if you're going into surgery, while vitamin C can actually help you recover much quicker coming, you know, going into and out of surgery, you have a lot of doctors say, hey, you can't take anything natural while you're while I'm going to be performing the surgery
1: pre or post only pharmaceuticals, right? Only pharmaceuticals.
0: And I got into it one time with my child's, uh, my child was getting his wisdom teeth removed. And I just wanted to have a conversation of what medications can remove, remove and replace with alternate options so that, you know, he didn't have to take all the meds involved with it. And he would not even have the conversation with me. So what did I do? I went to a friend who you know, is it who performs the same surgeries? I said, hey, can I get rid of this particular medication? What's the purpose of it? And went through the medications with him, changed them out. And when I showed up, the the other physician, like basically swore at me, call, calling me a bad mother and everything else. I said, hey, I tried to have this conversation with you. You wouldn't have it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So some, some, there are drug interactions uh, with supplements and that, that, that should be of concern. The problem is that the medical doctors do not see before them a full person who might also be taking something that's already by happenstance a blood thinner before they, by routine, every patient, every hospital visit, if you're going to be hospitalized, give, been given an IV with heparin. So you don't clot. Right. Okay. Without informed consent, people. Okay. So they, they want you on their drugs instead of on your supplements because they don't want to have to take the time to figure out What's going on with you? Where, you know, you have to fill out a, a form to get into the hospital. They could put a form on there. Are you taking any supplements? And which supplements, more importantly, have you taken over the past 10 days? That's the that's the appropriate kind of question to ask. Now, what happened with COVID was patients would go to the hospital with duffel bags of their supplements that they've taken every day for the past 10 years and vitamins and medicine. and the do- And the hospitals would say, they can't take anything from outside. They have to get their, what the, what what, med, what prescription medicines are they on? They have to get that from our pharmacy. And in one case that I know of, there was a patient that went in and the family called in and said, hey, you know, we, we managed to get some ivermectin pills. We'd like you to administer the ivermectin pills. And they said, sure, send the ivermectin and we'll do it. Well, the family was lied to and the ivermectin went missing and never seen again. Hmm. Well, what do you call that? I mean, from under the civil code of law, that's called theft.
0: I was going to say that's called theft. That's exactly it's right. Got a lot of things: kidnapping, theft.
2: <laughs> but we don't have a language for. We don't have a word for. Yeah, you know what? I I, I want to keep taking this, even though it's you know it's a supplement or it's off label. I want to keep taking that while you're trying out your other things. We don't have a word for that. There's it's not even addressed anywhere. In in the in, in the regulation of medicine, it's simply "quote unquote" standard of care because it's not in the protocol. Therefore, it's excluded from the protocol as the default, and that's wrong. It should be if there's a protocol, unless something is specifically known to have to be excluded, then it should be allowed.
0: Yeah, I I get you know my experiences of wanting to provide both the natural supplements along with medication in the past have just. You know, I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall. And so you oh. I end up taking things in my own hands. I can research. I can, you know, learn what things are gonna be
1: contraindicated, but most people don't have that ability. Well, and I think there's a fear too, because you, you do have knowledge of this and this is something that, you know, you're, I don't have any knowledge of this. And I think people have a fear like, well, I don't know this. The doctor knows, you know, yeah. and um, you know, my, my thought, as we hear this, a lot of this came to light with COVID for many of us, you know, where do we go from here? Does this get, continue to get worse? Um, is there, you know, what, what do we as normal lay people need to do um, to change this?
2: Well, Kathy, I appreciate your perspective, but let me tell you a story that turns that on its head. There's a woman who went into the pediatrician's office and the doctor said, it's time for the vaccine and I want your child to get the flu vaccine. And she said, oh no, I don't want to get the flu vaccine for my child. There's dimerosol, there's mercury in some vaccines. And the doctor said, there's no thimerosal in vaccines anymore. That was taken out years ago. And so she said no i'm not going to do it it's on the it's on the uh, product information sheet he said oh really i'm going to go get the product information sheet and he walked out with all bluster and offended that this woman was telling him what what you know the the reality was right. he came back with the product information sheet and he put it on the table and he walked out and he left and he didn't speak to the mother again the nurse administrator had to come in and finish the visit because he was wrong. She knew more than the doctor, and that's not uncommon. So there's no such thing as someone who can't learn about things that are going. you're going to put into your body. Everyone can learn a lot about everything that the doctors are thinking about putting in your body, and everyone can learn a lot about Supplements. We have an entire course called Herbology and Human Health. We have another course, Herbalism, or the, sorry, The Herbalist Perspective. You can learn a lot about the knowledge base about what these things do, what they're used for. And in the Herbology and, and Human Health course, I actually put together a lecture myself on the interactions between herbs and medicine. So it's possible to learn. Your body is your. Carriage of who you are through this life. It's the most important thing. It's your temple. You should not, you know, if you're going to abuse it and eat Cheetos and sit on the couch, okay, fine, that's one thing. But if you know, if you're not going to be concerned about whether you have too much inflammation and maybe there's some supplements that can help reduce inflammation. You know, or, you know, uh, if you're not going to be concerned about what's going, the the health effects of things like Hesperidin. oh my gosh, I'm in love with Hesperidin right now. So it (laughs) seems to be associated with better health outcomes for everybody on it. If you're not going to want to learn about these things, then okay, go to the doctor and have the doctor tell you you can't take things that other people are taking by the handful.
0: Yeah. I, and I think the key here is personal responsibility. You right. are in charge of your own life and we need to take that personal responsibility back across all sections of, of life, really. And accept that other people are not in charge of us on right. any playing field. Right.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and again, it, it's in so many, but it starts with, and, and you said, Jack there, it starts with your body. If you, you, this is the only bo- um, vessel that you have through your entire life is the vessel that you live in and breathe and so forth. And that uh, a friend of mine told me a couple years ago, you need to invest in your health. And that was the best advice I heard and changed um, significantly how I look at things because that we invest in homes, we invest in cars, we invest in 401ks education, but investing in our own health is the most important investment. It all starts from there. Absolutely.
0: And if someone is uncomfortable with the concepts that we're talking about here, you know going to ipac.edu and just starting to learn one course at a time right so you you have a vehicle to garner this knowledge to use this knowledge and it
1: enables us to be the people that we were designed to be, and able to make those decisions. And a good place to start might be in uh, looking at the entire Universal Declaration of Medical Rights, and um, you know all of those things that you may not have thought of before. Yeah, but
0: I but I want to hit one more article if we have enough time here, because I think Article 16 is also really important and kind of deviates from what we've been discussing. And this is the right to complete privacy regarding any and all medical conditions, diagnoses, therapies, treatments, or use of or exposure to prophylactics, including keeping such information from physicians, pharmacists, or their representatives, as well as insurance providers, employers, educational institutions, and any government official or deputized government representative. This is wildly important, in my opinion. You know, the idea... One thing that people don't realize that's happening: we actually have. Um, I have a friend who went to the dentist, and the dentist said, "Are your kids up to date with their vaccinations?" And she said, "Why? No, they're not." Within fifteen minutes, she got a phone call from the pediatric office trying to schedule appointments to get the immunizations. So the dentist up to date. called the pediatrician. That's correct. With these giant, um, these these giant EMR. Uh, records records that people are now keeping, there's communication that's happening within networks, right? So any doctor who's part of a hospital network, they're communicating to each other to ensure that all access points, everyone has that information, whether you wanted to share that information or not. And I think that that is grossly negligent on the part of the the hospital systems because we may not want all of our medical records out there The importance of insurance companies not having it, I think, is important because you're going to get charged or denied or whatever else. So there's a lot of things that that are wrapped up in this last article. We have, you know, about a minute, Jack, if you want to just summarize your thoughts on that and why you put that in there.
2: Well, you know, kids from a very young age until about 26 years old are very susceptible to peer pressure and public schools are an agent of the state they're an arm of the state they're a branch of the u.s government if a public school has the right to know your vaccination status say the school nurse has a right to know that's one thing but for every teacher and every other student to know your vaccination status can be a traumatizing experience for children
1: Well, we um, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's very informative. And to know that we all have these rights, we all need to, as we say on this show every week, wherever you are, whatever you can do today, stand up, step forward, and speak out.